Good morning. Would you please take your Bible and open it to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. We'll be reading verses 6 through 14 in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Where the Lord reads, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates so 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 that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Our Father, our great king, the Lord of hosts, Lord, we come before you asking for your help this morning. Help us to receive your word, to not just receive it, but to move upon it. I pray, Father, by the power of your spirit, that your word will go forth in a clear and effective way that you would illumine our minds and our hearts to receive it. And that, Lord, that it would change our very lives. Help us to see you more clearly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As shops and stores are opening more now, after COVID, or as COVID is kind of allowing for more shops to open up, there's an article written about a uh, local charity in the United Kingdom and this charity was, was talking about some of the donations that they normally receive on a usual, usual basis, weekly basis, yearly basis. And they're pointing out the fact that all of the donations they receive week after week, day after day, just how awful and just disgusting these donations are that people give to charity, knowing that it's going to be given to help other people. A handful of things they mention, I'll, I'll highlight a few, some of the donations they receive regularly used toilet brushes, a handbag containing a bag of dog waste, clothes with big splashes of blood on them, a chair with a missing leg, half-used bottles of shampoo, hair dye, and bubble bath, 
food out of date by several years, a big bag, a big bag of broken wax crayons, a stained potty, a box of rusty screws, nails, nuts, and bolts, dried up tubes of glue, and bits of broken wood, several loose knives not wrapped safely in a bag. And in fact, because they get so much rubbish throughout the year, they spend close to $38,000 a year paying for the garbage to be removed from their premises. However, a now-retired charity person of that shop says, it's important to remember not to judge because it is not known who the donor is and most people have good intentions. I felt that quite amusing. I don't care what your intentions were. If I get used toilet brushes, I'm highly offended. <laughs> in, other, in the other place in the article, it said actually used underwear, unwashed. I don't care what the intentions are. I'm offended. <laughs> if you're seeking to help me and this is what you offer me, I'd be highly angry, and rightly so. But on a larger spiritual scale, so to speak, I'd even argue that we're even, sometimes even amongst Christians, more concerned by our service or our works in a good way we're more concerned about our service, the exterior things that we offer to God, than how he actually receives them. I think sometimes we're more concerned about what we're doing and how busy we are and how much work we do for the Lord, but not so much as concerned about how the Lord views the work that we're offering to him. Have you thought about not only just the things that you do in your daily Christian service, but have you thought about the heart that's being rendered when you do them? What's the motivation? What is your desire? What is your purpose in all of these things? See, in Malachi, the nation of Israel here is on trial, so to speak. And not because they didn't give God enough, not because they didn't have many offerings, but because the manner in which they did give the offering, that God was offended. They were being judged because their hearts toward God had, had turned cold. Their hearts were just reckless and cold and passive and apathetic. And subsequently, their worship had turned cold. I think it's very easy for us, especially as New Testament Christians, to look at these Old Testament passages of Scripture and to read them kind of with our nose held high. We look, as we look down at Israel, just like, how, 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 how simple could they have been? It's very easy for us to pass easy judgment against them. Or just to view them as obscure stories of, of in the past, but now we're in greater times, that we have so much more revelation. But what I think we're prone to often remember, or not remember, is how much like Israel we actually are. Romans 15 verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 reminds us of the fact that we're really not far from the heart of Israel in many cases. That Paul reminds us that these things, speaking of Old Testament scripture, these things that happen to us happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That the examples in scripture you see in Israel, that these things he's saying, these happen so that we would not crave the evil things that they craved. That we would not do the evil things that they did. That this is an example for us to test our very own heart. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And God is still offended today at worthless sacrifices, at worthless worship, if you mean. That we are just as prone to being Israelites. That no doubt God's electing undeserved love, that how we worship him in response to who he is, that he is most concerned with the heart of the individual. 
And of course, the actual offering itself, as we'll see in this text. But so often we're prone to dismiss the fact that God cares just as much about the state of the individual as he does the offering being offered. So many themes in this rich book here in Malachi. But right here we're going to focus on in verse, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. In Malachi, there are the two indictments against cold worship that really do demand your genuine worship for God. I want us to highlight two indictments against this cold worship that demand your genuine worship for God. The first indictment we're going to see here in the first part of the text is uh, it's a worship without honor. A worship without honor in verses 6 through 10. Excuse me, 6 through 11. Now just take note as as Malachi begins his indictment. Look at verse 6 with me. That a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? Immediately here, as he's saying here, a, a father, a son would honor his father, a slave his master. This Jewish community would immediately understand the picture here that God is painting here. Think about it. Fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? That's how I always remember it in Sunday school, right? Honor your father and mother, right? They, they immediately would understand that. Of course, a son honors his father. Of course, a child is supposed to honor their father. But here, God is painting the picture for them to see. Well, you see, if, if you understand that basic truth that a child honors his father, I am a father to you. They knew that well. So if that is the case, Israel, where is my honor? Where is my honor? If you honor your earthly father, at least you know you're supposed to honor your earthly father. Where is my honor? Where is my respect? So they're not only supposed to honor him as a father, not only because of what he's done for them, and, and rightly so, God has done many things for them. We, we can go all throughout Genesis through Malachi, look at all God's faithfulness toward the nation of Israel, how he's been faithful toward them from the be- very beginning, even up until this point in many ways, God has been faithful. He's been a loving father t- toward them. He's carried them out through, through trial after trial, from exile after exile, that God has been faithful. So not only are they supposed to honor him just because of what he's done, but mostly because of who he is, that he is their father. He's their master. And he says, though, where is my honor? Where is my respect? These two terms here are not completely synonymous, that this idea of honor here is referring to the gravity or the importance. The same word is also translated as an honor in other places, um, excuse me, as glory in other places. So he's saying, where is my gravity? Where is my importance? Where is my glory here? That do you understand my weightiness of who I am? That if I am a father, where is this weight of glory that I deserve from you? And respect is such, it's it's a little bit too weak of a translation. Because this respect here is more the idea of of fear. That where is my fear? This is a healthy, good fear. As a child should fear their father. As 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 a child fears their parent. That's a good kind of fear. You should fear the parent. And this is the fear in response to who the person is. So God is saying here, where is my glory? Where is my weightiness, my gravity? Where is my fear? In other words, my awe. If that is the case that I am a father, that I am a master to you, then I should have this response from you. And obviously here in this assertion against them, they, he does not have it. But here he's not talking about the whole nation of Israel, Right? He's not just talking about the whole nation, although rightly so, he probably could give that same accusation against the whole nation. But here he's not speaking to the nation of Israel necessarily. He's speaking to whom? 
the priest, the priest, oh priest who despise my name. And here we have a case where the accusation against the priest is that they fail to glory in and to be in awe of God. I think one root problems or one root problem of, of cold worship is not necessarily that the elements or the practice of the worship is boring. It's that the person finds the one they're worshiping boring. It's how we come to view the God who has regulated how we partake and use these elements of worship. That the issue is not what we're doing necessarily is the boring part, but it's really, it's how I view the God I'm worshiping. Now, under this first indictment of worship without honor, there's going to be two pictures here I want you to see. We're going to see God's honor is despised, and then also God's honor is preserved. But first look with me that God's honor is despised. How is it despised? He says, oh, you priests, at the end of verse 6, who despise my name. Oh, you priests who despise my name. This is a significant offense to accuse them of. Because ultimately, if you you step back and think about it, every offense against God, every sin that we commit, it is an offense against God. But here he's he's convicting them. He's saying that you have despised my name, that you have offended me in what you're doing, that the very acts of their worthless worship, as we'll see here, is not just a sin in itself, but the ultimate sin is an offense against the glory of God that they're seeking to worship. that they were despising his name. And this is the priest's same question is, well, really, well, how is it that I despise your name in verse 6 at the end? How have we despised your name? What would you expect the answer to be in that scenario? How have we despised your name? You're accusing me of such a grave offense that I've offended your name. What would be the natural maybe or most reasonable response of, well, how have they, how have they despised his name? In my own mind, I think of, okay, well, let's get some high sins here. Blasphemy. They committed blasphemy against God. Oh, yeah, that's despising his name. Idolatry. Oh, that's a big one. They committed idolatry. They despised his name. Even worshiping other gods or even cursing his name. But that's not what God says here. That's not how they despise his name. This big offense. Look at verse 7. What do they do? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. While worshiping, their offense was against the practice of their worship. But the practice of their worship was connected with who Yahweh, their God, is. They are presenting this idea of worship, of sacrificing the whole sacrificial system that that priests were to do. Is that when they're offering defiled food upon the altar, the issue was not necessarily only in itself the defiled food, but it was the fact that they did not have enough regard of this holy God worthy of honor, worthy of respect, that they gave him worthless scraps as sacrifice. And they're oblivious to this, in a sense. Look how they respond to that. They, after you have presented defiled food upon my altar, but you say, this is their response, verse 7, how have we defiled you? How have we defiled you? What, what, what we have done? In verse 7, that, in that you say that the, the how have we defiled you? The table of the Lord is to be despised. 
Now, if you notice here, this is very brief in these first two verses here. There's almost like a Q&A here. It's what's been often called like a disputation or, or a debate almost. This is the style in which Malachi does his whole book from chapter to chapter is he sets up an assertion, accusation against Israel, and he starts it off with, with an assertion, and then it follows up with their responding with the question, well, how have we done that? And then he gives a response, well, this. And there's also an implication of that. Because you have done this, here are the implications of that. And we see that same format, this same style here in this passage before us is that they're given an, an accusation, and then they respond with a question, and then response, and then we'll also see the implication. Now, the questions here that they, they've responded to Yahweh when they says, well, how have we despised your name? What have we have done? This is not necessarily Malachi saying this is what they actually said. It wasn't as if he went to the priest and they had this actual dialogue he's transcribing for them. But he's using this style here to communicate what is really the, the, the response, what's going on at the heart level of Israel, of the priests at this time. What are they really saying with their actions? So he's almost putting the words in their mouth because he sees it from their heart. So this whole style of, of debate that Malachi is using here is that they're not necessarily saying these things out loud, but they were certainly saying it with their actions. So they were offering defiled food. In verse 8, it reads that, that when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? And let's step back here. He's talking to whom? The priest. Out of everybody in Israel, who should have known not to offer defiled food upon the altar? The priest. I mean, this is, this is like, you're talking to the, the priest. This is like their job description. <laughs> like, like, this is what you're supposed to do. You should know these things. Leviticus 22, verse 22, it, it, it's plain and simple for them. All the instructions given to them historically, they knew how they were to, to prescribe and to do their duties. And it says in Leviticus 22 that those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. They should have known this. This is clear to them. And the fact that he has to even say this to the priest is striking. That you even, I have to point out the fact that you are blatantly disobeying the word of God that was given to you specifically to represent me to the people and the people to me. That you are, are defiant in these actions. That here, it'd be one thing if Israel was on trial. If, if he was saying, Israel, this is how you've disobeyed me. Okay, yeah, that's... That's pretty, yeah, we understand that. Israel's been a mess from the very beginning. But not just Israel, the priests, the leaders here. At the very end of this Old Testament canon here, the very end, the priests are on trial in this section. This is what you have done. Now, what would cause this? What would cause this? These, these priests who, who have this, this high duty, high responsible, what would cause them to stray in such a way to offer sacrifices that are evil? I want to give us a couple of background, or I guess just a short trip, a background trip of Old Testament here. Because Malachi's ministry here took place somewhere in the mid, late, mid to late 400s BC. Now, it's always helpful for me because Old Testament history and the, the Old Testament books, they're, they're not written chronologically, right? It'd be helpful for us, but they're not always written chronologically. But it's helpful here in this instance that Malachi here is the last book of the Old Testament because it is the, the last in terms of chronology, what's going on here. It's written around the same time, actually, as, as Nehemiah 13, where some of the similar sins you'll see here in Malachi are also displayed in the book of Nehemiah. 
when you see the sins among the priest again, you see priestly complacency, you see neglect of tithes, you see intermarriage with foreign women, both here and also in Nehemiah 13, in that whole section. This is kind of going around the same time as that time. At this point now in time, if you want, it's helpful for my mind, I think it'd be helpful for you as well, is when you look at Old Testament history, two big dates you want to kind of implant in your mind to help you kind of figure out where, where something is, is 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. 722 and 586 B.C. are the, are the two big exiles of Israel. 722 B.C. is, is the, the exile of, of Israel, the northern nation, when they were exiled to Assyria, Assyria and 586 B.C. when the southern Judah was exiled to Babylon. Babylon. Those two big places, two big exiles. Now in Malachi here, we're, I guess from your vantage point, right over here, we're all the way after both of these exiles. We're all the way here. All that's happened, they've been, they've been judged. The prophet says, repent, repent, repent. They didn't judge. So boom, Israel, north nation was judged and exiled. Repent, repent, repent. Southern nation didn't repent, exiled. And now we're here at the very end. Now after this point, it's also important for us to realize is that 60 to 70 years before this point in time, the temple had been rebuilt. They came back from exile now, and now they have a new temple. They rebuilt the temple, offering sacrifices, worshiping again. They're back, kind of getting back to almost normal in one sense. And so now 50, 60 years pass by. They have their temple installed. They're offering sacrifices. And then now we're here at this text. So what happened? 50 to 7 years gone by. Complacency set in. In their mind, as some people have speculated, now at this point we have our temple, we're back in our land, we've been judged. Where are the blessings now we talked about? Where are the blessings we read about? What about the blessings of prosperity, of peace, the return of God's glorious presence, the Shekinah glory returning to the temple? Where are all these blessings at? At this point in time, although they did, we're starting to be back in the land, they were having some sort of blessings. They didn't see the blessings that they were looking forward to. In fact, they were ex- experiencing drought. They were exp- experiencing economic hardship, crop failure, pestilence. All these things were happening upon them, and complacency set in. They offered all these things, doing them by the book of the law, but what would classify it for God to call their sacrifices evil? That when you present the blind and sacrifice it, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? See here, what's going on is the very fact, even though they were offering sacrifices to God, they were offering lame and sick sacrifices of God because they were complacent in their setting. They did not see all the blessings that they were looking forward to. Their heart was staked and anchored in the goodness and the riches rather than the goodness and the riches of God himself. They wanted all the blessings, but they didn't want the God who brought the blessings. And I think it's interesting here that when God is describing their sacrifices, like keep in mind, they're doing the sacrifices. They're at least, at least going to the altar. They're offering sacrifices, but God calls it evil. He calls it evil. Not just, not, not just impure, though it is. Not, not just, uh, it's kind of, it's subpar. He calls it evil. It's wicked in God's eyes. Because ultimately, they worshiped but not in accordance with his word. He wanted a pure, unblemished sacrifice. And even a worship, even a sacrifice that is disobedient and goes against God's word, God calls it evil, calls it wicked. 
since they were offering mangled and sick animals instead of giving their best as was required. And these animals, it was, it was so bad that even here, Malachi here at, at the end of verse 8, he says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, these sacrifices you're giving to God in worship, what if you were to give those same sacrifices to your governor at that, t- at that point? W- would you give to your earthly governor, your earthly ruler? I mean, put in your shoes. You go for your job review, annual job review, right? And you show up. And your boss says, you know what, you've been here every day, 365 days of the year, no sick calls, use no vacation, you've been present at your desk every single day. So what have you done? And you hold up this piece of paper. See that? Done that. Blank sheet of paper. Yeah, okay. So, okay, you've been here, you've been at your desk and every single day, but, but what have you done? See this? I've done this. Oh, wait, I, I don't get it. No, I, I've been here every single day. I haven't missed, I haven't never called off once. I've been to every meeting, on time, on Zoom for every single meeting. I've been here all year. But what have you done? Nothing. Would you offer that kind of sacrifice to your earthly boss? The picture here he gives him here is that this kind of worship you're giving to God, would you even give that to your governor? If you wouldn't give that to your governor because you'd be ashamed, why would you even think you could offer that to a holy, majestic God? Would you offer that to him? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly? The answer is no. I mean, I always think about it in retail workers. I, obviously, I've never been in retail, so if you have been or are, forgive me. This is my just observation, is that sometimes when you encounter retail workers, then they tell you, thank you for shopping at so-and-so, have a good day, and they hand you a receipt and walk away. And it's like they have no smile on their face, and they're just like, they're almost kind of grimacing, almost kind of like angry, like, thank you for shopping at so-and-so, have a good day. In my mind, I think about it like, I don't think you believe that. <laughs> I don't think you actually are thankful that I'm here and that I shopped here, and I don't think you actually want me to have a good day. I mean, you're saying the right thing, you're, you're doing the right things, but I don't really believe you believe that. But how would that retail worker act if CEO was right there present? Have a good day, sir, come back again. <laughs> it would be a completely different scenario. And you know why? It's because they realize they don't really care. The heart's not in it. You can do all the right things, offer all the right things, but if it's not done in the manner prescribed that God has prescribed us to do it, it can be offensive and even evil in God's sight. That even our worship can be in that case. And so much so that Malachi continues a wordplay here in verse 9. He says, now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? That word here, entreat, almost, is almost like softening the face of God. In other words, Malachi is saying here, would you soften the face of God with this kind of offering? The same lame and sick animal sacrifices you're offering? Would you not now, if you wouldn't give them to your governor, would you now soften, seek to soften the face of God, and make, him, make him nice and make him kind by offering these sacrifices to him? Is that what you can seek to do? With such an offering in your part, he says, priest, will he receive any of you kindly? He's really have to open their eyes to see their blindness in the fact that this, this, these wretched, evil, wicked sacrifices you wouldn't give to your governor. So now try to soften God's face with these same kind of sacrifices. Will he receive you kindly? And the answer is no. Is no. 
And I think it does beg the question for us that we must ask ourselves, can we come together to worship God and offend the very God we seek to worship? Can we come together to worship God and offend the very God we seek to worship? Even in your personal life, I seek to be a vessel of worship and glory to God. Can I offend God, the very God I seek to worship in my worship? I think the answer is yes. Because the reality is worship, we are to worship God how he's prescribed us to worship him. We ought to worship God the way he's prescribed us to worship him. That we do not worship our holy and righteous God in any way we choose to choose to worship him. But he has prescribed for us how to worship. And in the context of the priest, he's prescribed for them how they are to worship him. How they are to represent him to, the, to him before God and his people. That he are there at a specific way that the priests were to conduct their worship services, their worship, their sacrifices, so to speak. And yet they did not do so. And the reason why, because they offered defiled and lame animals. And they did this not just because it was easy, but they did it ultimately because, verse 6, where is my honor? Where is my fear? That the heart of the issue is here that they did not honor and they did not fear the God they were seeking to worship. God hates their sacrifice. He hates it, as he says here, and it's worthless worship, and he rejects it as a result. Because in verse 10, look at the response of God to this. Is that, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. The response, God is, okay, well, you know what? They tried their best. You know, their heart was in the right place. No, no, no. I, I, I don't want any of that, God says. I don't want your worship. I don't want your praise. I don't care what you do. You can worship me till you turn blue. I don't care. I don't want it. That God hates it. He rejected it. He doesn't even want their sacrifice. It'd actually be better if they did not even sacrifice it at all. Because obviously we know God's not relying upon their, their worship. He's not, rely, he's not waiting for them. Oh, I hope they worship me today. Like he doesn't need them. That God would rather not have none of it than this defiled worship they were offering him. Psalm 50 verse 9 says that for every beast of the forest is mine, God says. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. God doesn't need any sacrifice. He doesn't need no animal. He doesn't need no incense. or He doesn't need that from them. It already belongs to him. The primary issue at stake was they didn't honor and fear the God they were worshiping. And because they didn't honor and fear him, they could offer lame sacrifices that directly went against his word for them. So he rejected it. But yet, we see God's honor preserved. Even in spite of their disobedience, we see God's honor preserved. Despite their, honor to, their, their, despite their refusal to honor God as they ought to, it did not hinder God's glory. We have to remember that God's glory is intrinsic. He, it, it's not dependent upon whether we give him glory, that he is more glorified. We, 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 it doesn't matter. God in himself is glorious. He's mighty. He's righteous all by himself. He does not need me. He does not need you. He does not need any of us to acknowledge it. He is 
glorious, he is honorable, he is mighty all by himself. And God himself preserves his honor. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is just a wonderful verse here, just, just sandwiched here in the, in the midst of this, the priest's wretched sin. That he says that his glory, he will be made great among the nations. It points to the fact that he'll be exalted by all peoples despite what Israel does. That he will be glorified. In fact, it says from the rising of the sun to, even to its setting. I think oftentimes when I was growing up, I used to view that as, as, as a time, like 24 hours a day from the very early of the morning to the end of the day, God's going to be glorified. That's true, but that's not what the text is saying here. That, that this, this idiom, this phrase is, is speaking the fact that everywhere where the sun touches from, from its rising all the way to its setting, everywhere the sun touches, my glory will be great. It's not speaking in terms of time, but of geography. That everywhere the sun touches, God's glory will be great. What a beautiful verse here, a beautiful pocket there, right there, that God's glory will be great. And even more here, he says that that incense is going to be offered to my name. That he uses almost a passive voice or a a causative tone in order to say that, that offerings, I will cause offerings to be made to me. It's not dependent upon the priest here. This is important here because the priest's duty, their active duty, was to actively offer sacrifices. And as they're being judged in this passage, God here says, despite what you have done, I will cause offering to be made to me, one that is pleasing and acceptable in my sight, no matter what you have done. That he is going to do it. He is going to cause for these offerings to be made in a way that is pleasing to him. It's the idea of bringing near and presenting all this to God in a way that, that pleases him. That the sacrifices in this, in this verse here will be brought to God, and these sacrifices will not be rejected like the priest sacrifices in Malachi 1 were. God will do this as he purifies the priesthood. Now the question remains is, how will this happen? We're here in the middle of this, this passage here, at the end, of, in the end of the Old Testament canon, we hear in this passage here, he's saying that, no, my name will be great among the nations. That incense is going to be offered and a grain offering that is pure. How will this happen? There have been kind of four, maybe four most popular views, I'd say, that have been presented about how will this happen? How will his name be great amongst all the nations? And how will this, this, this incense and grain offering be offered to him? How, how is this going to happen? Because obviously it's not happening now. Four prominent views of this is the one view is that the worship of Yahweh is to be made by the, by the dispersion community there. That in other words, that, that all the people around them, that the Jews eventually around them even could be, at that time, the Jews who dispersed eventually, and also the Jews of the early church, that they will eventually worship Yahweh as he is prescribed. So this, this, this speaking here, then the fulfillment is, is when those Jews kind of worship him as, as they disperse and they kind of come to Christ, that these dispersed Jews will worship Yahweh there. That's one view. Another view is this worship here is going to be the worship of proselytes. That those who come to Christ, who are converted and, and converted to, to Judaism or whatever the case may be, that they're going to offer sacrifices and they're going to worship God just like the Jews do. 
And since sacrifice could only be offered in Jerusalem only, the offerings of these proselytes are understood to be in a spiritual sense, this this worship of prayer and praise that's going to be done here. So spiritually then, everywhere, they're going to offer praise to Yahweh. It's a second view. A third view here is that it's the contemporary worship of Yahweh by the nations. That, that the people there of the, of, of the whole time where Malachi's day, that the nations there will worship Yahweh. This view actually finds many supporters that people affirm that. It's the idea that the gods of other nations, that these gods, although they're worshiping other gods at that time, that they're worshiping genuinely, that they're actually, even though they're worshiping other gods, but since they're worshiping genuinely, that they're ultimately worshiping the God of Israel. They're worshiping Yahweh. And that support actually finds its way many ways today. Um, the Catholic Church even today believes that Muslims who worship with a sincere heart are worshiping the same God as the father of Abraham. So it's the third view. That's the third view. The fourth view is that this worship, this future worship of Yahweh is by the nations. That this is a worship that is not now or even that day, but this is a future time when Yahweh will be worshiped by the, nature, by the nations. It's looking to a future day when Yahweh will be the God of the nations, as one person put it. Just briefly with our time here, I just want to go over the first three understandings, and I have a, some significant issues with them, and I just want to briefly explain them and kind of go back and circle where I've landed, where I think Scripture teaches is the true understanding of how this worship of Yahweh among the nations will happen. The first objection of this worship of Yahweh by the dispersed community of Jews, I, I don't see that as probable because the nations, they didn't know about him. They, they, sorry, they knew about this God of Yahweh, but they weren't worshiping him. So even though they're dispersed in their own nations, the nations knew this God of Israel, but they were not worshiping him. This is a, a false fulfillment of this passage, that they knew about this God, but this was not the kind of worship that you see here where they're offering pure offerings to God. I just don't see that that can play out fully. They did not revere and worship God as he described that they would. Secondly, the understanding that this is the worship of proselytes is I I see that's a big problem with that as well because in this passage here, the root word for offering up is literally to go up in smoke. And this assumes real sacrifice, as many commentators have affirmed. This is a real sacrifice that's happening here. And so for other people around them to, to worship God, their own gods in the way that they see fit, for them to bow down to their own carved idols, no matter how genuine they are, no matter how much they seek to worship, God is not the same as offering up smoke that is pure and acceptable to God. You'd have to stretch that passage to say that this means that anyone who worships God, though genuinely, is actually worshiping the God of Yahweh, which is to stretch the meaning of this passage. The third, the third understanding that this is the contemporary worship of Yahweh by the nations. Again, there's no way that these pagan nations were offering sacrifices properly. It's direct opposition to the whole point of this passage. The problem of this passage is that they weren't offering sacrifices properly. So to say that these could be other p- pagan nations, you're saying here that they're, they're doing the same thing in verses 6 through 8. <laughs> they're offering lame and, and impure sacrifices that go against God's word. You can't worship them any way you want to. None of these hold up. The only reasonable outcome is this is the future worship of Yahweh by the nations. This is a future point in time. It's looking to a future day when Yahweh will truly be the God of the nations. When everywhere, everywhere the sun touches, that God will be exalted and he will be exalted purely and truly in such a way that not only he be acknowledged as God, but many will worship him and revere him and worship him with full hearts. 
This idiom here, it looks to the future, that it's, it's the universe, universality of this whole verse that, that God will be praised everywhere. That if you look in the whole context of the Old Testament canon, that the Old Testament saints looked forward to a day when God's kingdom would here reign on earth. They looked forward to a kingdom here, a millennial kingdom here on earth, when their Savior would reign on earth. Another point where I think why it is future is you see the whole phrase, the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. Many other times in the Old Testament, when that phrase, that one phrase is used, it's used in kind of an uh, apocalyptic context where it's speaking toward the future when, when the Savior, when the Messiah would come and rule the nations. It's not just used flippantly. It's used specifically in those contexts of this future time when this great Messiah would come and reign. For one example is Isaiah 59. We won't go there for the sake of time, but you can read it later. But Isaiah 59, specifically looking at verse 19, it speaks of the return of the, the Messiah, the servant, and he comes and Israel repents and he rules and reigns on the kingdom. And in that very context of that chapter, Isaiah 59, you see Israel's repentance connected with the coming of the Messiah and his universal reign on earth. That's just one passage there. I think further on is the context of the whole book here is that Malachi is not just about the, the, the desolation or the destruction of Israel. It's about the purification of them. It's about the purification and not the desolation. Let's go forward a little bit. Chapter 3, I want you to see this. Chapter 3, verse 2. Now this is speaking after all these judgments. Now it's speaking of the, the, the Messiah, the messenger who's going to come. Verse 1 says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, purification, right? Purification. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. That his coming here is describing he's going he's to refine, he's going to purify, he's going to cleanse, he's going to wash when he comes. Go to verse 3. And he, sit, and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. That you see he's going to purify the sons of Levi, the Levites, the priests. He's going to purify them so that, what? They may offer, make my offerings present they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness, which they were not doing. That his coming is returning. He's going to purify. He's going to wash so they can offer finally an offering that is pure and righteous. Go down to verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Let's stop there. I, the Lord, do not change. He's saying here that he is the same. He does not change. Therefore, O sons of Israel, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You see that? You catch that, right? I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore, O sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. The reason why he does not just desolate them and destruct, destroy them completely is because he does not change. His word is the same. And the reason why I don't just completely wipe you out is because I do not change, and my word and my covenant is going to last. So instead of destroying, I'm going to purify that's what he's going to do. He's going to purify so that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, that he is going to be great among the nations. And finally, he's going to be revered and worshiped rightly as is due his name. That because he does not change, 
He's going to purify. But make no mistake, human responsibility is still real in this passage. Because guess who will get judged? Those priests. Guess who are coming? Judgment awaits. The priests who are offering lame sacrifices, who do not offer, who do not worship and love the God they're seeking to worship. They will be judged. Human responsibility is a real thing. (laughs) But yet, the overall picture here that God is saying here is that I will purify a priesthood for my own. One particular objection that people have noted in this, in this very verse is that if that's the case, if, he, if he's going to be, if you're speaking to a future reign of the Messiah, then why does it say here that every, in every place, in verse 11, chapter 1, going back, why does it say that in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure? How is that going to be in every place if, if the temple is only supposed to be in one place, in Jerusalem? How is it supposed to be that in every place where the sun touches, they're going to offer worship and sacrifices? That simple objection can be answered with an easy grammatical understanding. Is that in every place, in verse 11, is a simple preposition in, in Hebrew. It's in, of, from. It's a very simple preposition that can be translated multiple ways. And commentators have agreed as well that it's not only can be in every place, but from every place, instance, is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. That's, that's the only main objection I see that's actually reasonable, but can be answered simply with the fact that you, this is our English understanding of a Hebrew preposition that can be translated many ways, that from every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. So if we come back to the whole context here, that, that God, is going to be, God is going to be glorified, he's going to be worshiped rightly, even though they did not, they failed to honor him and worship him rightly, that God will purify for himself his own people, his own priesthood, and he will be praised in the manner that he he prescribed so that everywhere when he returns, the, the Messiah here, the kingdom that the Old Testament saints look forward to from Isaiah 60 to already 65, the, 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 this kingdom here they look forward to, it will come to full fruition when the Messiah is here on earth. And when he reigns and when he rules, then we'll see the fulfillment of this. And of course, now we see it happening slowly as many come to Christ that he is still saving even till this day. But Malachi here is pointing to the fact that this is a purifier who's going to come, who's ultimately going to do this. So even in the midst of this, God's honor is preserved. And this ultimately stands upon the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. That the reason why any of this can happen is, again, it's pointing forward to the Messiah, who is not only going to come, but he's he's a returning Messiah. So we cannot remove the fact, we cannot forget the fact that God will be glorified no matter what, that he is the ultimate cause of all the worship, that he will turn back the hearts of the fathers to their sons, the sons to the fathers. He is going to change hearts and he will restore so that every single people group on earth will be represented around the throne, that he will be praised forevermore. He will purify the worship that from the rising of the sun, even to the setting, he's going to be great. We have to go to our second indictment. It's not only is it a worship without honor, but now it's a worship without purity. And look how he starts off verse 12. But you are profaning it. He goes back to their same sins. He goes back to their same issues that he started off in verse 6. Is that they were offering lame sacrifices. He says, well, you know what? In spite of that, I'm going to be worshiped no matter what. Now it's back to you. You are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is to be defiled. And for its fruit, it's to be despised. They were, they were obviously despising and hating it because they didn't offer it and honor it as they ought to. 
because they're offering sinful sacrifices, essentially they were saying that this table is to be despised. It's worthless. It's almost like the whole idea of like, you know, a little kid goes over to someone's house and they put up their feet on the, on the furniture. The parents are like, stop it, stop it. <laughs> and like, obviously kids don't care. It's just furniture. This is, this is my resting place. To the kids, everywhere is their kingdom, right? Because they have no regard for it. And that's the same way he's saying here is that, that you say the food, the fruit is to be despised. You don't care about it. So you offer anything because ultimately you don't care about me. That their sin ultimately was about the God whom they're offending. And you also say, this is the priest, my, how tiresome it is. This is, it's, oh, this is so much work. Like all we have to do is every day. Oh, and once a year, you got to do a whole festival. Oh, this is too much. How tiresome. You disdainfully sniff at it. You scoff at it. Like, what is this? Oh, another animal. Oh, oh, this, this, oh, this one. Oh, bring it. Just bring it. This is worse. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're Israel. We're, we're God's chosen people. This, yeah, bring it. Bring it. They didn't care. And God saw that. And he hated it. That they were, it was apathetic worship. Their, their sacrifices were impure. They were defiled. And in verse 13, in the middle there, it says, you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. And so you bring that offering. You notice here, you're bringing whatever was taken by robbery. In other words, people were even stealing animals and offering as a sacrifice as if it was their own. And we know the basic fundamentals of sacrifice, right? It better be your own sacrifice, otherwise it's not a sacrifice. But now you're taking what was stolen and you're offering as if it was yours? Like, what is this? Like, what's going on here? You take what is lame, what is sick? And you know what I think this also points to the fact is, remember here, priests, yeah, oftentimes offering, making the sacrifice, executing the sacrifice here, but who do you think should have been stopping the sacrifices as people were bringing these lame and blemished sacrifices? Right? The priest. Like, wait, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Is that a broken leg? No, get out of here. You tie him up. Throw him in jail. Right? The priest should have been, the, 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 they should head up. They should have been stalwarts. They should have stopped those, that sick sacrifice. They should have been the ones saying here, no, 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 our God is holy. He redeemed us out of Pharaoh's hand. He redeemed us all through the, the wilderness. He kept us in his hand. We are a people of his own. We will magnify. We will worship our God. Get that out of here and you too. But no, no, no. They accepted it. I think it's also a point to remember here is that when, when apathy sets in at the leadership level, it always trickles down to the people. Fathers, fathers, if we're apathetic about the things of God in our own household, it's going to trickle down to our wives and to our children. Leaders, whenever the leader is a mess, the people will be a mess. That this is not just a sin of the priest. They have to also accept the sacrifices of the people who were willing to bring these sacrifices to God. That this was a trickle down kind of sin. That not only were the priests allowing it, but it affected the people. So much so that even, he says in verse 14, curses the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. This is the case where the people here were, they, they would vow, like, I'm going to give you my best, my male, my, the best of my flock. And then they would give a blemished animal. In other words, it's all for show. They're, they're telling all what they're going to do, but they would actually give the lame and the sick. And God says, curses that one. He's a swindler who says they're going to give so much, but actually really lie about it. Think of Ananias and Sapphira who lied, said that they were giving all of the, the, all of the proceeds and really kept some from themselves. It was all about the glory. It was all what people can see about me. Had no respect, no fear, no glory for God. 
And he says, curse is that per- person. That ultimately these, these sacrifices are offered because they did not honor the God whom they are worshiping. We have to remember here is that the attitude of our worship is just as important as the elements of our worship. The attitude of our worship is just as important as the elements of our worship. As A.W. Tozer said, he says that worship, it begins in the heart. That what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because what you think about this great God will manifest itself in how you live and how you worship that God. That really what it boils down to is why we're not so far away from the sin of the priest is because we need to check our own hearts. Is what kind of honor and fear do I have for the God that I profess to worship? Because I doubt anyone in this room would say that they despise the name of the Lord. I, I doubt anyone in here would say they despise God's name. But that's not, the, that's not the point. The point is, when you're offering that worship, what's going on in your heart? And what is it that you're offering? Because a lot of times, even though maybe the offering may look pure, maybe the service looks pure, maybe you're here every single Sunday, maybe you're involved in every single ministry, but what is it the motive and the reason that you're here? What, what is it that we're doing here? Am I seeking to glorify myself? Do I realize the God whom I'm worshiping? Do I fear him? Or even, maybe I'm doing all these things great, but Monday through Saturday, my spiritual life is a mess. That I sing loud on Sunday, but I'm walking in darkness through the week. That that's just hypocrisy. That God sees the heart. And he wants at the heart level one who loves and reveres and honors him. I want to touch on just a few things before we close out. How do do I rekindle this type of honor in my daily worship? How do I rekindle this type of honor in my daily worship? So remember here, the smallest thing in your life, brothers and sisters, the smallest thing in your life God is concerned with. Whether you're vacuuming the carpet in the church or teaching a Sunday school class, you name it, the most humble task is pleasing to the Lord when it's done from a pure heart that realizes the weightiness of his glory and fears him greatly and therefore serves him willingly and gladly. That that ought to be the constant refrain of our service. That no matter what you render unto God in your daily life, whether it's even parenting your children, the simplest task of obedience, we ought to do it with a joyful heart seeking to please and honor the God who placed us there. That everything in your life, whether you eat or drink, is to be done to the glory of God. So everything God is concerned about in your heart, and he's most concerned about not the fruit you produce from what you do, but he's most concerned about the heart from which it comes from. That do you love and worship this God? Because if you do, then your worship, the acts of it, the presentation of the animals will be pure and unblemished because you realize he requires all. So I'm going to give him my all. So how do we rekindle this? Worship must start with God. If I may go back to Malachi chapter 1 in the verse, first five verses that Pastor Nigel last week so eloquently highlighted for us, that he started there just wonderfully with the electing love of God. That he called you out, believer, he called you out. 
of darkness into his kingdom of his marvelous light. That he brought you, he made you who, who had nothing into everything. He gave you everything in Christ. That you must constantly meditate and chew upon the goodness of God in salvation. That if you lose sight of what God has done for you in Christ, then you will lose sight and you will lose everything in how you do everything in your whole life in terms of worship, in terms of service, you name it. If you lose sight of that basic truth of the magnificence of God's grace, his amazing grace that saved an unworthy wretch like you, if you lose sight of that, that will impact all the worship you do in response to that. Meditate, chew upon the greatness of the salvation that's been given to you in Christ. And beyond that is never lose sight of verse 6, that God is a God who's worthy of honor and your fear. Return to who he is, his greatness, his honor, his glory, his fear. Constantly look upon him. See who this great God is. Reflect on his greatness that's been revealed to us in his word and in his son ultimately. Honor him in your hearts. Fear him, his greatness in your marriages, in your parenting, in your work, everything you do, honor him. Keep him first. What does he demand of me right now? I must honor this great God. But realize, believer, that this is only done. Any sacrifice you do is based upon the sacrifice of Christ. Return to what he has done. Return to what he has done and to who he is And let the actions flow from that. And I realize too, that there may be even some in this room. There are many who do so many works for God. They offer so many sacrifices. They do so many things. And that they do it for the sake of their own glory. There are many people who do so many works. And yet do not know the God for whom they're working. That you don't please God just from your mere works. You please God, starting at the heart, and it flow from your works, flow out into works. That are here, listen here, if you're here, and and you think you're pleasing God just from just showing up every Sunday, maybe just from just religious acts that you do, that's not where it starts. Pleasing God here starts with realizing what God has done in Christ for you. What God has done in Christ for all those who look to him. That what God has done in Christ is he died on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God. That he bore the wrath that you should have borne. So that if you look and believe upon him, that you will be pleasing in his sight because of what his son has done. The ultimate sacrifice. That Christ is the only pleasing sacrifice in his sight. So no matter what you do, what you think you can do, we must realize is that ultimately God is pleased with his son Christ and he saves his own to do works that are pleasing to him in Christ. That every work that we do is ultimately a work of his own. We are always worshiping, brothers and sisters. We're always worshiping. Worship is rooted in where you find your awe and your wonder and where you take delight. At the end of the day, where is it that you find your delight, your greatest joy? Is, do you honor the Lord? Do you realize his weightiness, his glory, his honor, his splendor, his wonder? Is that the constant delight and meditation, the refrain of your heart? Focus on him. Keep your eyes on his wonder. Keep your eyes on him. And work obediently with all zeal, with all reverence. Work mightily for his namesake. Father God, we have so much here that 
we can't unpack. And God, I just pray that you would take your word and you would use it for your glory. Lord, as we realize that we are often so prone to work in our own strength and to seek to please you in our own strength, I pray, Father, that we would find that our all-sufficiency, our delight, everything that we are is a gift from you. And I pray, Lord, that we would constantly look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and would you purify in us a desire and, and a heart to love you and to worship you. So God, I just pray that you would be pleased and honored in our lives as we go, go from here. <clears throat> I ask this in Christ's name, amen.